You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. Uh, For those of you who I haven't had a chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, welcome as you join us this morning. Uh, We continue our study of Romans. We are kind of making our way deep now into the book of Romans. We are at the end of Romans 13, uh, looking at a passage that is is so powerful that very famously, uh, there's a a theologian, a church father, who says this passage actually changed his life, and that is none other than St. Augustine of Hippo. In fact, he reports in his book, Confessions, that his conversion, which happened in 386 AD, happened because of this passage. St. Augustine was in a moment in his life where he was kind of spiritually wistful. He was uh, kind of a, a playboy of the day, if you will, uh, living up in, in sensuality and, and lust of the flesh. And in this moment, he recalls hearing uh, some children singing a little song uh, that said, tole lege, tole lege, which is Latin, basically means take up and read. And St. Augustine in the moment responded to this little child's song, and he took a scroll of Bible and he just flung it open. Now, I wouldn't Um, I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to do this all the time. And he just said, I'm going to read whatever I land on. And he flings the Bible open, and it lands here in Romans 13, verse 14, and he read the words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision of the flesh. And in that moment, St. Augustine says, he was alive. He woke up. That's how he describes his conversion. He says, I woke up after reading this passage. I didn't need to read anything else. This satisfied. It was sufficient. And he woke up, and and we know of his life, really, and his writings, that he changed much of Western civilization. Now, the the phrase that he used here to describe his own conversion, what Paul uses, is that phrase, wake up. It's kind of the title of our, our passage today, to wake up. And for some of us in the room, that idea of waking up is not a very happy phrase. In fact, for some of us in the room, if we're honest, uh, if you're not a morning, morning person here, uh, you despise the phrase, wake up. You don't like waking up in the morning. Uh, I, we have a, a, a couple of friends of ours, uh, Abby and I, uh, who may or may not be in the audience. I'm not going to out them today, but, uh, but they are members of King's Church. Um, and uh, they, <laughs> they told us a story one time. It was a genius invention that the husband got for the wife while she was in law school, which also just eliminated some of you, but not a lot of you, because they're there's a lot of lawyers in here. Um, and he got, he got her this, this, uh, this invention to help her wake up and study every day. And it was an alarm clock, and the picture's going to be on the screen here. Uh, this alarm clock is called Clocky. Okay, anybody ever heard of this before? Okay, this is either an ingenious invention or torture. I'm not really sure. Uh, depending on who you are today, you might read it as one or the other. This clock literally runs away from you when the alarm goes off. <laughs> the genius idea, right? The tagline for Clocky, if you look up on Amazon, some of you may need to go purchase this right now, um, it says, you'll never be late again. Clocky runs, jumps, and hides so that you can wake up on time. <laughs> right? Uh, like I said, some of you are like, that is torture to think of that. Uh, for others of you, that's a, that's a pretty good idea, actually. The point is, is that we need help waking up. Uh, whether we're a morning person or not, we need help to wake up from our slumber. And what Paul's going to get at today is that we need to wake up to a reality that is true for us as Christians. That, that we are no longer to be asleep in this world any longer. That there is something that we need to wake up to, and as the church, what he's going to press upon us today, is we need to wake up to the reality that we are a community of love and of light. That we're a community of love because of God's great love for us in the gospel, and we are a community of light that we walk in the daytime and not in the nighttime in this world anymore. 
And that really is going to be the main theme of this passage, the idea of waking up to this reality. And we're going to look at it in, in our main idea today in simply these two phrases. That Paul's going to reinforce this idea that we are to love one another again, which is going to echo a lot of what we saw in Romans 12, and we are to live in the light. We are to love one another, and we are to live in the light. That to know Jesus is to know his no- love so, so well that we become a church that, that realizes that we have hope for today because our best days and our most beautiful days are ahead of us. And because of that reality, that can motivate us and empower us through Christ to express and show love in a dark world that so desperately needs the light. That is what he's calling us to today. And it really does help us when we think about the structure of Romans, this passage. Because as we've been talking about in Romans, it's structured really as two parts. Romans 1 through 11 and then 12 onward. And then Romans 1 through 11, God is showing us his great love for us in the gospel. He's showing us his great love for us through what Christ has done for us. And then he pivots to Romans 12, and now he's saying, because of what Christ has done for us, allow that to then transform you into be people who follow his will and who live properly in this world. And essentially what he's saying is Christ has done for us in the past. We reflect on that. We look at that in the gospel, but we also see what Christ is doing for us in the present. That he is working in us as a church community, a vibrancy and an aliveness in his church in the way in which he's working out our salvation. Now, in doing that, Romans 12 and 13 really focus on this one theme of love. It's repeated time and time again. We saw it in Romans 12, and we, saw, we see it here in Romans 13. It is the, the theme of those who truly embrace Jesus as Lord. It's a preeminent Christian virtue. It is the first fruit of the Spirit. It's the one Paul says never ends. It's when Paul says in 1 Corinthians that without it, we are nothing. It is a defining mark of authentic Christianity. That's why Paul is emphasizing it time and time again here. And what he's going to call us again is the church that there's a practical way in which we love our community, that we love our neighbors. And he's going to show us today that there's motivation for how we do that. And ultimately, he's going to show us the power that we have to do it. And so that's going to be our outline today. We're going to look at three sections here. First, the commandment that Paul gives, the practical commandment. As the church, we are to love our neighbor. And then we're going to see from there that there's motivation for how we do that. We're going to live for the day, not the night. And then thirdly, he's going to show us the power that we had to put on something in order to do this in the world in which we live in. So commandment, love your neighbor, motivation, live for the day. And thirdly, the power we have to dress for the occasion. So let's go ahead and dive into the text here. Verse 8 of chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. So Paul is, is, is reminding us again of this theme of love that we saw in chapter 12, this genuine love that we have both for one another and for our enemies. And then he also showed us even how this love uh, is portrayed and how we live as citizens of this world last week. So Romans 13, 1 through 7 is not a kind of a segue from this theme of love. It's just showing another aspect of that. that as model citizens, as, Paul, uh, as Bill talked about last week, as model citizens, we have duties uh, in our society. We have a way in which we live in this world with the reality of those who God has put in place in authority. And so when we look at this, we see that, that's, that what we saw last week is another aspect of how we have neighbor love, another aspect of how we live in love. And then Paul gets back to this function of love, that even expressing it in things like paying our taxes, expressing it in things like what he says in verse 8 here, 
owe no one anything. And what does he mean by that? Well, simply put it, he means that if we owe something to someone, we should repay that. We have debt, we should pay that. That is a loving thing to do for our neighbor. But notice what he says next, except to love each other. What is Paul saying? He's saying that there is a debt that can never be paid off in full. There is a debt that we're not meant to pay, that we're not meant to discharge, and that is the debt to love one another. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, think of it in this term. Uh, when you, when you see a movie where some, someone, like the good guy, like saves someone's life, and after he saves their life, what is the first words they utter after that? Oh, I can never repay you, right? Or they'll just say something like, how can I ever repay you? The point is that they cannot repay that person. Right? That person has saved their life. They are now gladly indebted to that person and should be gladly indebted to that person for the rest of their lives because that person saved their life. And on a cosmic level, this is the gospel. That Christ has come and he has done everything for us. And we didn't deserve any of it. He laid down his life for us. He died for us. He was sent and put his life in place of our life on the cross so that when God looks at us and he wishes that we had good and not evil, the only way that 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 could happen for us is that Jesus takes the evil that we have done because we rejected his love in the first place. He takes that for us, and therefore, we become debtors of Christ. This is the Christian gospel, right? And this is what makes Christ's love for us so freeing, so beautiful, and, and, and what makes the love that we display to one another so freeing and so beautiful is that we can never pay it back. We just can't. We're not meant to. It, it wouldn't be grace if we could. We were never meant to pay this type of love back, which is why Paul says there's one debt that Christians should always carry around and gladly carry around and pay towards others, and that is something we should never grow tired of, and that is loving one another. Because a Christian can never say, I have loved enough now because of what Christ has done for us. Now, this is sometimes hard to comprehend because oftentimes in our society, we don't want to see love as a sense of duty or a sense of even a debt. We, we want to think of love as a feeling. That's the main way in which society thinks of love. It's, it's counterintuitive to think of it anything else, right? It's, it's how we feel because we see love as something done to us, not something we do for others. Now, there's a problem with that. And, and the problem with that is that's not how love sustains. Think of any relationship you have, family, friends, or even a marriage. Those relationships don't last a lifetime because the feelings of love were sustained over a lifetime. The, in all those circumstances, the relationships endure because at some point, the feeling of love waned, but the parties involved decided to lean into their duty to one another, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a parent. It's one thing that, that means that our, we're, we're in debt to one another, to love one another, to continue to love one another, even when we don't feel it. There are times where my wife doesn't feel like loving me, and she has really good reasons to feel that way. Because <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> but she still chooses to love me. Because even when she doesn't feel it, it reflects a greater depth of commitment and love to me. Because love is not based on the feelings that we have that will wane and will change. Rather, as Paul's saying here, the true love is, has duty built into it, but then he also says it has a direction to it. It has guidance to it that keeps it from harming one another. Notice what he says here, that true neighbor love does no wrong to our neighbor. And in doing so, something actually happens. There is a fulfilling of the purpose of the law when we love in this way. Now, this can kind of get a little muddled because at times we're, we're tempted to believe that law, the God's law, God's commandments, and love contradict each other. Uh, we tend to believe that they're kind of at in, they're enemies with one another. But that's not true. 
That's not the Bible, right? It's not as if, well, if, if, if we obey God's commandments and law, then somehow we're less loving. Or if we are loving people, then we'll have a, a, a less interest in obeying God's commandments. No, what Paul's saying here, in fact, is the law of God, God's commandments, and the way of love are intimately related to one another. They need each other. What Paul's saying here is that love needs the law for its direction. And the law needs God's love for its inspiration. Because our human love has no moral compass. It just doesn't. The heart wants what the heart wants. And we'll do anything we can to desire to fulfill the heart's desire, even if it means harming someone else. Which is why we need God's law. Which is why he says when we do this, we actually fulfill the law. What he's saying here is the fulfilling of the law simply is this. That we love. In other words, when we love guess what we're doing? We're following the law. In other words, what he's saying is to love God is to obey his commandments, which is something Jesus says as well in the Gospel of John. To love God is to actually obey his commandments, and that makes a lot of sense when we think about the implication of God's law, God's moral law, specifically when it comes to our horizontal relationships, which Paul is emphasizing here. Notice what he says. He says, you shall not commit adultery. What does that mean? That means it's a very unloving thing to be unfaithful. That's what he's getting at. Or how does love and law relate to you shall not murder? Well, this one probably should be easy for us. It is a very unloving thing to unjustly take the life of another. Or what does it mean that you shall not steal? It's a very unloving thing to take that which is not yours. What about coveting? It's a very unloving thing to covet what others have that is not yours. And then he gets down to the end of this passage, and he talks about in verse 11 through 13, he talks about these other patterns of this world that we need to avoid, and he says things like, you should not be drunk. Why? Because when you're not in your right mind, you will hurt others. You should not give in to sexual morality. Why? Why should we not use sex in, 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 in the way that God is not attentive between a man and a woman in marriage? Why? Because that's not loving, that's selfish. What Paul is emphasizing here and the point he's trying to make is that when we love our neighbor as ourselves, which is what he says sums up these horizontal commandments, when we love our neighbor as ourselves, what we're saying is that we ought to desire for our neighbor the very things we desire for ourselves. That it's not just that we don't do these things. That's a great start, right? It's a good start that you don't murder your neighbor, okay? It's a good start that you don't commit adultery. But then it's pivoting and saying, what are the things that I love about myself, the things that I seek in my own desires, and how do I have the same love and the same care for others? And that's a very countercultural idea. Because the good and happiness of another is not the normal way in which we think. But consider all the ways in which we love ourselves. We pursue security and safety to love ourselves. We seek to fulfill our desires to love ourselves. We work for the success of our careers to love ourselves. We seek the good of our relationships and families to love ourselves. We engage in friendship and communities. We do all these things because we love ourselves and we want ourselves to flourish. And what Paul is saying is that the love of our neighbor, to love our neighbor as ourselves, is that same internal drive that cares for ourselves. We are to then think about caring for others in the very same way. Which then begs the question, well, who is our neighbor then? Paul specifically uses a word that is more generic. It literally just means your fellow man. Paul's emphasis here is that it's someone who is not you. It's someone who is different from you, someone who is not like yourself. And the reason he's saying that is because the very baseline of why we love other people is because it is a person. 
That's it. It's not because of who they are in society. It's not because of what value they could bring to me. And the most persuasive argument that we can have this type of neighbor love for those people who are different from us than who are around us is to believe that everybody is made in the image of God. And if you actually believe that, then it will diffuse any category in your mind that places value on people's lives. And which is why it's important to believe in the existence of God. Because if there is no God, if we've just evolved from millions and millions of years of, of random chance to create a random society, then why love another person? Why love someone who is hard to love? I mean, if they're, if they're just a combination of neurons and atoms and there's no greater meaning to them, then why actually love them? And whatever reason you can come up with from a naturalistic point of view will pale in comparison to the concept and the argument from God's word that we are to love people because they are purposely and powerfully created by their creator in his image. That is why we love, despite their circumstances, despite their behaviors. And what Paul is summarizing here for us is that the horizontal laws of the Bible that, that relate to human relationships, they are summed up in loving other people. And it's a hard truth to live by, is it not? It's a hard truth because if we're honest with ourselves, we tend to divide people in our brains as those who are worthy of our love and those who are unworthy of our love. We tend to divide people in our brains, those who, who uh, we, we think deserve our love and those who don't deserve our love. But the Bible says if you're made in the image of God, you are loved. And because of what Christ has done for us, those categories have to go away. Because there's no more you're worthy of love and you're unworthy of love. We're all unworthy. There's no more you deserve love and you don't deserve love. We, none of us deserve love. And because of what Christ has done us, we are now in debt to Christ. And because of that, we should gladly and joyfully never grow tired of loving our neighbors as Christ has loved us unconditionally. Now, that's a hard command. So what's the motivation for doing this then? What motivates us to live in a world where it's hard to love? Well, he says we have something to live for. We're living for a day. He says, verse 11, look at what Paul says. He says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In order to go on loving our neighbors in the way God has called us, we have to understand the present time in which we live. If we're going to care for others, we're going to love others as God has called us, we need to know and remind ourselves this morning that we're both citizens of this world and of an eternal kingdom which is breaking in like the dawn on a dark night, Paul says. Now, I, one of the things I love about camping is that you actually get to experience what darkness feels like. And when you go camping, you know, like you're really out in the middle of nowhere, you, you understand what darkness is. Because it's, it's, it's complete dark, minus maybe some flashlights or a campfire. But it's hard to experience darkness in the city because we have the power to control it, don't we not? We, we have the power to turn on our, our lights. We have the power to, to, uh, to make the light appear whenever we want to. But when you're out in complete darkness, you don't have control over it anymore. The only hope you have is that it will get bright again when the sun rises. And you know what that does is it stirs in your heart something that you can't wait for the light of day to come forth. There's an anticipation, there's a desperation for it. And that's what Paul is saying should be the heart of a Christian, that the night is nearly over. The day has almost arrived. And generally speaking, you don't sleep in the day. You sleep at night. 
And Paul says we should be awake because there's a day that this, these verses are referring to, particularly in, in verse 12 there, that the day is at hand. And that verse refers to a day that has begun when Christ came and broke into history and entered our world. And as if the cosmic clock has struck midnight and everything begins to change in the world. And what is happening now? The world is waking up. Paul says light is slowly closing or coming into this world because Jesus is alive. And so as Christians, we need to know this has happened already. Because what that means is the future has now come into the present. The kingdom of God is here. Not fully, Paul says, but it's here. As Christians, we are then to wake up and to live in the light of that future. You know, one of my favorite uh, books, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and we've quoted this several times here at King's Church, it has this beautiful description in the middle of the story of, of when they're in Narnia. And it's this beautiful description of what's happening in the life of Narnia. It says that it's always winter and never Christmas. And what Lewis means by that is really what, what life looks like before Jesus broke into this world. Always winter, never Christmas. But then Lewis says in Narnia, but Aslan is on the move. He says it's still cold, it's still dark, there's still the white witch, but the snow is melting. The flowers are blooming because Aslan is on the move. What Paul is saying here today, church, is that Jesus is on the move. He is here. He is alive. He is on the move, which means every hour of our life is one hour closer to him coming back. And when he comes back, he will fulfill his promise to make all things new. So Paul is saying here that we should wake up and stop living as if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's saying we should stop acting like it doesn't matter that he has come back to life. That we should wake up and see that every part of our life is supposed to live in anticipation of that reality of that day. Which brings an excitement to our lives and an urgency in our lives that we wake up and live for the day in which Jesus returns. Now how does that help us be loving people in this world? What's well, everything, right? Because it gives us a sound vision for this day. It reminds us that our future hope is actually what speaks and informs into our present reality. That, that it's just not an intellectual exercise to think about the future. It's not something that we just wait for one day. That the future has now come in part by faith, which means that our future reality can transform our present circumstances. It can transform how we live in our lives now. So we can actually begin to live in the same way that we will live for all eternity. Which means for the Christian, there are really three days we should rejoice in, in the life. Yesterday, he died for me. Today, he lives for me. And tomorrow, he'll come back for me. That is the Christian life. And it's so important to understand this because the question we have to ask ourselves is, what day are we fundamentally living for? Are we living for the joys of this day only? Or are we living for that day? Are we allowing that day to inform our lives so much so that even on the worst days we experience in this world, we can still be a beacon of hope and light and love to those around us? It's important because this causes balance in the Christian life for us in the here and now. Because it reminds us that we're still in the darkness of this world. But even though there's darkness around us, we can have more optimism than the most optimistic philosophy of the day. Because Christianity reminds us that we have the power over death that in Christ, the, he will heal all brokenness, that he will actually make all things new. That is more optimistic than the most optimistic philosophy of our day, but it also allows us to be balanced because Christianity reminds us that we can have the most pessimism <laughs> than the most pessimistic philosophy of the day. And what I mean by that is the most pessimistic philosophy is perhaps by Stoics or determinists would say that nothing can change. 
Don't ever try to change. Things are just the way they are. And Christianity comes in and says, no, 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 no. Things are actually worse than that. <laughs> there is no hope apart from Christ. And that allows us to live in this life and remind ourselves, but God, there is nothing impossible with him. That even though it is dark outside, God has provided rescue. He has reached down in the pits of our darkness and despair, and, he, and we have seen the light, which means we have hope in this present world. So if today perhaps you're thinking of this world and you're thinking it's all dark outside, then look at this text today and be reminded of the day where Jesus will return and allow the light of Christ to wake you up, to love others, and to experience in part now which we will experience in fullness on that day. And perhaps today if you're like, well, everything's great in this life right now, then today wake up to the reality that there's still darkness around us and allow that to then push you to depend upon Jesus alone as the one who can make all things new. You see, this is our motivation that comes from that day. And when that eternal perspective is, is now uh, affecting our present reality, it allows us to bring forth hope and love for our neighbors in this world. Which then gets us to our third point today. What is the power to do this? Well, Paul says we have to wear something in order to have the power to do this. We have to dress for the occasion. Look what he says in verse 12 again. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality or sensuality, uh, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, Paul uses a, a term here of what we should put on first in, in chapter, or verse 12. He says we should put on an armor, an armor of light. He uses the military word here. Why is Paul using the military word to describe what we need to put on? Well, I think he's showing us how dire things are in this world, in the already not yet. For instance, if you lose or you fail at your business, you will lose something. You'll probably lose money. If you mess up with other people, you will lose relationships. But if you mess up on the battlefield, you lose your life, right? That's what Paul's saying here. It's a matter of life and death that we have to put on this armor because if we don't put on the armor, it's not just that we'll be an unloving person or that we'll be an unkind person. He's saying your life will go dark. But the Christian life is not one of sleepiness or slumber. It's a battle. And he says we have armor that we have to put on to have the power to live in the light in this world. And so how do we do that? Well, he says we do it by walking properly, verse 13. Let us walk properly. And what does he mean by that? He means that our lives are distinctly different from the patterns of our old life. We walk in a different way. He describes our old life here with things like debauchery and uh, drunkenness and sexual morality and quarreling and jealousy. He says, now we don't walk in those ways anymore. We start walking and carving out a new pattern of our life that is consistent with both the law of God and the love of God. We walk with God daily and with his people. Now, that's hard. That takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. What it means when the Bible talks about we walk in a certain way, it means that we, we have an entrenched pattern of life that becomes like second nature to us. You know, it's like when you walk around D.C., you can very quickly determine by people's walk whether they are D.C. residents or they are tourists. I mean, you just can't. If you're tourists here, we love you. Thank you for visiting King's Church. <laughs> but you can just tell. You can just tell, right? A, a, a tourist is slow. They're always in the way. And they are generally confused, right? But someone from D.C. walks fast. They're getting from one place to another, one meeting to another. They go to their coffee shop, they get their coffee, they swipe their card, they get out, they don't have to think about it. Why do we not think about it? Because we've been entrenched in a way of life. That is the Christian walk. 
To walk properly means that we entrench ourselves in a way of life, that we pattern our life after something else, after a world that is coming. And it is a hard thing to do, but it is a daily thing to do, to conform to our, life, our lives to the character of God, which is what he then tells us to do. That in order to do that, verse 14, we have to put on some clothes. We have to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's interesting that he tells us to actively put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in, in Galatians 3.27, Paul uses the very same phrase there, but instead he uses it in the past tense. He says, you have already been clothed in Christ. You have already put on Christ. What is he talking about there? Why Are these things conflicting one another? No, not at all. What he's saying here is it's one thing to think that we're being clothed in Christ. It's another thing to know that we are already clothed in Christ. We're not trying to close ourselves in Christ in order to do good works to earn God's favor. We are already clothed with Christ as a Christian, meaning that that becomes our identity. Now, let's just think of it in terms of clothing in general. Uh, let's just put it this way. If you go out to a nice dinner and you put on your best dress suit or your, your best evening gown, right, chances are if you're going to a fancy dinner, you're going to act differently at that dinner than you would if you were in your sweatpants at home with a uh, bucket of ice cream watching television okay? Uh, most likely, you're going to act differently, right? W- why, why would you act differently there? Well, because our dress, in a lot of ways, changes the way we act. Our clothing has an effect on us. We get our identity from our clothing. If you think about it, you see it all the time in D.C. But by what we wear, we are making a statement. We're saying, this is what I value. This is what I look like. This is what I care about. This is my nature. This is my essence. In other words, if you really think about it, clothing Clothing becomes your closest possession. It's literally sheltering you. It's covering you. You're naked without it. In other words, it it becomes fundamentally who you are. What Paul is showing us here is that when he says Christ is our clothing, what he is saying is that Christ becomes our closest possession. He's saying that Christ becomes the one that we rely on for our ultimate identity that Christ is the moment-by-moment dependence that we rely on to shelter us in this life. And so if you don't have him clothing you, then guess what? You're going to be clothed by something else. And whatever that is, I can guarantee you, it's not going to fit you well. It's going to be baggy. It's going to be awkward because you were not made for it. It's not going to cover you in the way that it needs to cover you. But what Paul is saying here is that we need to put on Christ to wear him not just by believing in our hearts, but making him the core of our identity. That is the starting point of having the power to live in the light of this world. To that Christ is our life. To know that, that the first thing that everybody sees in our life is him. That the first thing that we put on in the morning is him. To close our, uh, clothe ourselves with Christ's power to live and love in this world. And so as we come to the Lord's table today for communion, that's the starting point for us, church. If we want to love well in this world, if we want to live in the light in this world, we start by reminding ourselves of what Christ has done for us to clothe us. That he was not just ripped, his clothing was not just ripped when he went to the cross. No, a spear was aimed at his heart that should have been directed at ours. He was naked for us so that we could be clothed in him. He was covered with our sins so that we could be covered in his love today. And let that be the reminder today that that the clothes that we're now wearing as a Christian are radiant. That you, Christian, are decked out in splendor and wonder and beauty because of Christ. And if we truly believe that today, 
then let's not cling to, to the need to use other people and other things for our identity anymore. But to know that we've been wrapped, we've been washed, we've been cleansed, and we've been wrapped around with the beauty of Christ. And if that's what we're addressed in today, and we see that glory around us, then that alone should be enough power to move us out into this world and to be a community of light and hope and love. Because we're not living to achieve God's goodness and his love, but each day we're able to receive his grace. And we're able to move out and love others in a balanced way, not using them, but loving them as we walk into the light until the day he returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.